economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney <laughs> Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, we have a fun thing today to talk about. Somehow we'll work faith into this as well, because I know I've said a few prayers at airports, but Peter just recently gave a presentation to the Southern Economics Association meeting, and it had to do with airline overbooking. And I know I've been the beneficiary. It hasn't happened as much, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say because I don't know much about it. But one time I had an hour longer layover to get to LA or something for a conference, and I was in Orange County, stayed there an extra hour and earned about $800 worth of travel tickets because I was able to defer my flight a little bit longer because they had overbooked it. So... Peter, what do you got to say on this topic? Yeah, so the paper that I just recently presented at the Southern Economic Association, and it's written with uh, Dr. Peter Betke and Dr. Rosalino Candela, both at uh, George Mason University, deals with, as Russ mentioned, airline overbooking and oversales, and specifically the relationship between the solution to the airline overbooking problem, which occurred in the the 70s, 60s, 70s, and Mises' critique, Ludwig von Mises' critique of socialism. And so uh, mm. these, these seem like strange bedfellows. Why would, what, what does airline overbooking have to do with the critique of socialism? But I, I think the best way to get into it is to start off with a little bit of the history. And so the system that we have now where you can essentially sort of bid to have your flight delayed and you know they, they'll give you money in exchange didn't always exist. In this, the 60s, the 70s, and beforehand, basically what airlines did, they knew that some people would be missing their flights for whatever reason. Maybe they were late to the airport. Maybe they made last second changes, but couldn't cancel. So there were going to be empty seats. And these empty seats cause a problem for everybody. It causes a problem for the airline because these are seats that they could have sold to someone else and got more revenue from. And likewise, as economists know, demand curves slope down. And so we know that if you sell more quantity, it's going to be for a lower price. So in other words, the other passengers could have gotten lower price tickets had the airline been able to sell these empty seats again. And so to solve this problem, airlines started overbooking their flights. They would sell more tickets than they had seats available in hopes, essentially, that enough people wouldn't show up that it would work out perfectly, that they would have the flight totally filled and have some extra seats sold to the people who didn't show up. That was the goal. And of course, this caused problems because sometimes everyone would show up or enough people would show up that there would be too many people or not enough seats. And so before the airline overbooking solution, this was decided arbitrarily. And so I've got excerpts from the American Airlines handbook that says, be careful not to admit to anybody that we made this mistake. We, prom- <laughs> we promise we're not doing this intentionally. It's just an error that ha- occurs occasionally. Wow. Um, we promise that we're not doing this intentionally, even though they were. Well, they said that we, we allow for some margin of error was uh, their explanation. Okay. But it, yes, they, they did claim to, to not be doing it intentionally, that it was never the intended result. And then people would be kicked off. Instead, the reasons were always really arbitrary. People can be kicked off because they're the last person to buy the ticket, or you know, the really you know awkward language is when it says something like "depending on urgency," whatever yeah. that means, right? At their discretion. Yeah. But otherwise, first come, first serve is kind of human nature to to get some sort of ranking system when when the 
monetary exchanges isn't involved. Yeah, and, and the really over-the-top sometimes given solution was in extreme cases, it may be necessary to cancel the flight until all passengers have deep lanes. And so in the circumstance where passengers were refusing to give up their seats, no one wanted to go on to the next plane, they would actually cancel the flight, force everyone off of the plane, and just schedule them onto different flights. Mm -hmm. Social um, pressure to, to, for them to bow down. Bow yeah. down yeah. yeah, absolutely. So this obviously caused like a ton of problems. People were very unhappy with this system. Airlines were unhappy with it, but it was their own solution. People were unhappy with getting kicked off flights. And so this was when an economist, Julian Simon, came along and made a simple proposal, which is that you should let markets decide. In other words, he proposed a reverse auction. Russ, can you tell us about a reverse auction? Oh, gosh, you hit me that on, right on the spur of the moment. You better, you better take it away. I won't say it as eloquently as you. Sure. Okay, that's fine. Uh, a reverse auction is <laughs> essentially the system we use now where everyone is given a chance to think of or write down whatever amount they'd be willing to accept. The reservation price. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the reservation price you'd be willing to accept to leave the flight. So listeners, maybe some of you have done this where they say, how much would you be willing to pay? We have it overbooked, so put your price in. And If you're in a hurry, you might say, well, I don't want to miss it for $200, but for $500, I might be late to Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly right. And so sometimes people, you know, are willing to do this at a low price. Sometimes it takes a little bit of a higher price. Like Russ said, you know, I've been the beneficiary of this. In fact, my wife and on our honeymoon, we we almost were lucky enough. Someone sniped us right before, but we decided we would take an extra 48, I think, no, 24 hours in Mexico if they offered us $650 each. That's kind of what we decided for our, our timeline there. But they, we got sniped just before the 650 mark. So someone else got it. But this solution, Simon argued, would, would be a Pareto improvement, essentially. And what that means, actually, Russ, can, can you tell the listeners what a Pareto improvement is? So, yeah, Pareto improvement is an action that makes at least someone better off without making anybody else worse off. Yeah. And so Simon's contention was, you know, everybody's better off except maybe like the busing companies or the, the railroad industry. Hmm. But the, the reason being is airlines can continue to overbook. People would be better off if they decided to give up their seats or, in other words, sell their seats, essentially, to the other customers. And the people who didn't get bumps would be better off. So everyone's better off. So Simon thought this was a no-brainer. And I think, listeners, you can appreciate, economists are big on subjective value, which Dr. Clark has some issues with, the way, the way that's exactly defined. But we all value that flight differently. We all might have paid roughly, let's call it, 350. We know that they have some pricing schemes going on as well, but we all paid somewhere in that ballpark. But really, for somebody who's flying to go see a loved one or a death in a family or something, they might be willing to pay $1,500. And so they would never exchange their flight. Whereas grandpa and grandma going to see son and daughter for a nebulous amount of time will easily take a couple hundred bucks to delay for an hour or two hours or whatever. So we all value that flight. The value that each person puts on is unique according to their circumstances that are really only known by them at the time and place. That, that segues perfectly, Russ, into why this is connected with the arguments about Mises' critique of socialism. And so Ludwig von Mises was, was an economist in the early 20th century, and he had one of the, the most well-known critiques of socialism. Essentially what Mises said is that you need to have prices in order to make decisions about things. So why use platinum in a railroad or why use iron in a railroad? Well, we use iron, but why is it, you know, it, I ask my class this and every year someone says, well, because platinum's more expensive. It's like, yeah, right. but 
how do you know that? And the answer is prices. And so Mises' little syllogism is without exchange of the means of production, there are no markets for the means of production. Without markets for the means of production, there are no prices for the means of the price for the means of production. And this is capital. This is what you know the Marxist claims they were trying to seize with the means of production. And then without prices, you can't have rational economic calculation. And so the, the but I don't like prices. <laughs> Why can't everything be free? <laughs> oh, uh, well, I, you know, in the world we have a, a, a certain amount of uh, scarcity. In other words, you know, just uh, the nature of reality is such that you can't have everything you want exactly when you want want it. And I always tell a class, like the best evidence for this is that you do anything, like you get out of bed in the morning, right? That, that's like evidence that there are things in the world that you want that you can't have right now. But then there's Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett. They don't face scarcity of monetary resources. It's not fair. I, I, I guess I don't know about scarcity of monetary resources, but I do know that everyone does face scarcity. I mean, even Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have to decide, you know, they, they have a, a certain amount of time in the day and they have to prioritize the things they want to do most. Bill, Bill Gates can't go jet skiing and take a flight across country in the same period of time. So, I, but regardless, you know, even Bill Gates and Warren Buffett would run out of resources at some point. You know, if they, Bill Gates wanted to build a gigantic bull statue, uh, you know, of himself, he, he would run out. Justin, do you have something? Yeah. So I liked your explanation of the reverse markets uh, with regard to overbooking, but, and I know you mentioned the arbitrary method earlier, but maybe it would make some sense to just highlight again, the difference between the Pareto superiority of the reverse market option versus the arbitrary method. Yeah, so, that, I think that's a great idea. So the let, let's do maybe the first method, which is like the the first come first serve. So first come first serve, or or actually a better one would be the waiting. And so one option that they had when they were deplaning is they would just wait for someone to give up and take a later flight. That that's maybe the better one. And so the difference between this Pareto option and the waiting option is that when everybody's waiting on the plane, it's true that the person who least values the flight in terms of their time will be the one to leave the plane first. But the reason that this is worse than Simon's solution, the reverse auction, is that that time that you wait is a resource that disappears, it's destroyed, it never comes back. Economists, everybody incurs it. Yeah, that's right. Everyone on the flight waiting. incurs that. Yeah. And so that's called dissipation in economics. The, those resources dissipate, everyone loses that time. The reverse auction, on the other hand, it's true that the person who least values the flight is still the one who gets off the flight, but everyone else, instead of waiting and destroying time, they transfer some of their wealth through, you know, the, the airline. In this case, the airline transfers some wealth to that person. And so instead of the time, which goes away forever, it's money, which actually goes to a specific person. There's a transfer that's going on. And so this is why, you know, you, you'd rather pay to get through a line quickly than, you know, just wait in line because we, we can't have a transfer of this money. Arbitrarily, and to get back to, to Justin's point, if it was just arbitrary, well, then when you arbitrarily decide you're the person who has to wait on the next flight, that person is worse off. They wish they could have stayed on the flight and bet not been the person to get kicked off, but they were the person kicked off. And so that's not a Pareto improvement. That's someone being made worse off. But if there's yeah, an auction- and, and that could be a roll of a die that might appear fair. So we have 100, 200 people on the flight or whatever, and now we- use a random number generator to pick which one. There's an element of fairness yes. to that, but it still doesn't mean that it's parade improvement or better than another method. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. There's this, versus equity. A, a good distinction there that it could be fair without making everyone better off. And so that's a really interesting insight, I think, too, uh, as it relates to, to socialism, is that perhaps we could have unfair things that still make people worse off. Mm-hmm. But the alternative option, I think we could also, and Justin, you could chime in with your philosophical insights here, but it seems fair to me also to let the person who wants to give up their seat for a certain amount of money, let them give up their seats, and then everybody else who doesn't want to give up their seats to give up their seats. In fact, this seems not only fair, but it seems like something that benefits everyone. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on what we mean by fairness, right? But, you know, the great Sidney Morganbesser, who is a philosopher, he once was protesting the Vietnam War and policemen clubbed him in the head and he got interviewed by the paper and they said, you know, don't you think they were treating you unjustly and unfairly? And he said, well, they treated me unjustly, but they treated me perfectly fairly. They were clubbing everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then I think we should review also the, maybe back to Justin, at least what I thought was his original point with the arbitrariness of the airline using their discretion to say what was urgent. You mentioned that early on, that that was one of their mechanisms. Like if I assume that like some people would plead their case and say, oh, I have a death in the family. It's really important for me was another method, correct? Yeah. And as an economist, uh, philosophers probably would have a a different problem with maybe the arbitrariness of this. But as an economist, my issue with this is like, how would you ever know the, the urgency that someone has? You know, in economics, we assign urgency by your willingness to give up other things. And the person who's willing to give up the most stuff is the person who must want that thing most urgently. That's what a market does. But, you know, there, there, you run into this problem of like tacit knowledge, knowledge that we couldn't even quantify. How on earth do you quantify if someone would rather see her grandma in her last, in, in her grandma's, their grandma's last moments until they're flying home to see her versus someone who wants, who's on a business trip, whose wife is giving birth and he wants to see the birth of his son. Like right. that, you know, I, I don't even think. And here's is, the first question. How many times did you visit grandma a year? Did you really <laughs> love her more than, I mean, it, it calls it into question. I mean, you don't know. It's, it's it can't be measured. Yeah. That tacit knowledge or the level of love or whatever you want to call it. But we can measure the trade-offs that they're willing to do with the money that comes in. But, yeah, that's, as that's much as I love grandma, I would take the 300 bucks and wait a couple more hours. <laughs> if I miss the, if I miss the funeral, I miss the funeral. It's, you know, we, we don't know. We can't measure that very easily. So listeners, you may have different subjective values than Russ, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that that's a reason. I, and I think a lot of people would take that trade off. And the point is that markets help us know. So I think maybe after the break, we can get into uh, back to socialism and how this relates and then maybe talk more of the details. I can't help but think too that I I see some people getting, uh, maybe this is a good place to tease into the break that just because you chose the $300 doesn't necessarily diminish to any extent the love that you have for your grandma, right? You can still love grandma and take the 300. Really sounds like you're making some excuses for yourself. <laughs> well, I've tried to explain this to my wife for years, but it doesn't. Uh, it has fallen on deaf ears. Yeah, many times. you're just not loving her on the march. But we will try to see if we can figure crack that nut here on our on our after a break. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. 
The Gordon Institute at Otter University is the best place for the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. We've got some great student events. Uh, this spring, we're uh, planning a PPE event. So we just started philosophy, politics, and economics major here. And we're going to have students competing on those events and thinking about the interlay and the history of uh, elements of markets and how those have helped uh, lead to human flourishing. So we got a lot of fun events, including some video games and other things. So um, if you or someone you know is looking for a college that does stuff like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Okay, so we're back. So I think we're just trying to figure out how we can justify skipping church and going fishing if it's marginally acceptable or not in God's eye, but that seemed to go too deep. I was getting criticized off the microphone for us chasing that one down. So instead, Peter's come up with some fabulous ways to think about some of these trade-offs and a little bit differently as we carry on our conversation on trying to look at issues of efficiency and equity. Equity in the sense of fairness and efficiency in the form of making people better off without making anybody else worse off. Because an economist says that's inefficient if there is something we could have done that made somebody better off without making somebody else worse off, then that is the efficient thing to do and should be done. So it's kind of a normative statement there that we're kind of being dumb, leaving some unused gains on the table. So Peter? Yeah, so I think that the best way to continue is to finish up and make the final connection between Simon's solution to airline overbooking and socialism. And I think that's going to get us some interesting grounds to talk about in terms of fairness versus improvement and human flourishing. So the final connection I'll make, and so I, I mentioned Mises' argument that what you need is prices. Well, the, the interesting insight here is that Simon's solution to airline overbooking and Mises' argument against socialism are, are interlinked that Mises' argument against socialism is that there are no prices. The problem with airline overbooking for these seat sales is that there were no prices associated with the seats. There were too many people there and there was no mechanism by which people could decide who gets the seats. There was no prices for the seats, essentially. And so Simon's solution, notice all he did was he, he proposed we create a system where there's prices. And that system is and only can be really the market. That, you know, in exchanging and bargaining, prices are created. It's not like there's something that exists in the abstract and we can just kind of like, you know, tinker our way to them with equations. But it's that people actually create the prices in the process. So Simon's solution to their airline overbooking problem is we create prices. The lack of prices is the problem in socialism. And so I think the interesting implication of this is I, I think if we want Pareto improvements, the, the way towards Pareto improvements is, is not arbitrary handing out of things based on, you know, different measures of fairness, which, which are ultimately subjective, but basing it on people's, you know, voluntary willingness to pay for things. Yeah, I'm glad you added the voluntary, because one thing when, when you opened up by saying, Nisa said, we need prices. I think it's, it's stronger in that. We just say it implicitly, but I don't think the listeners would necessarily get that, that we need prices that come from voluntary exchange right. among free individuals. That's right. And that's the thing that's moving around. And if it's free individuals that aren't harming other individuals, the voluntary exchange is the key element that signals you wouldn't have done something if it didn't make yourself better off. And so the market system creates these win-win situations. And in the meantime, through exchange, 
prices move up, some prices move down, and that's always reflecting human preferences and desires while it's doing that. So the, the need of prices is, is an element of human action through voluntary markets. And that's the part that's missing with socialism. And, and sometimes it's missing with big government too. So we can get into, you know, some economists would argue more forthright that, well, markets have externalities and that means there might be pollution and thing, you know, property rights. And we get into those solutions, which we'll plan on doing on another podcast on some market solutions to environmental issues that may not be perfect, but would still involve a government. But the government distorts these free exchanges and therefore the prices get distorted and can lead to unintended consequences. Well, and an important thing to, oh, go ahead, Justin. Uh, just real quickly to tie Russ's point into Peter's paper, you know, when you're, you're mentioning things like, well, markets have these problems and you know, these problems can arise. I think one of the things that, that Peter's pointing out is, look, the airlines had a problem, right? And the with overbooking and the way we solved this problem was to create this market. Yeah, I was going to actually say that sort of the same point rephrased just a little differently, which is that externalities, you know, pollution, things like that actually aren't created by markets. They're explicitly created by the absence of markets. It's only those places where we can't have voluntary exchange, where we have these problems of pollution and things like that. But remember, we have to think of what the alternatives are. And this is what Russ was just getting at too, is, you know, we have an option. Who should get the clean environment? This is a question. There's not infinite clean environment. We can't have electricity and a totally pristine clean environment. And so who should get what environment? Well, one thing we can do is we could do like the airline did and make arbitrary decisions and, you know, maybe do first come first serve, maybe, you know, an airline person likes one person's story better than the other story, who should go home. This applies to all resources, you know, who should get the best environment? Well, you know, do you want the best environment for a person who has like four kids or maybe an older person who has asthma, who deserves the best environment? Well, uh, it, it's arbitrary unless we can make a, a situation where people have voluntary exchanges over this sort of thing. And so I, I think, you know, and this gets a little out of Mises' argument and more into some normative stuff, but I think that one of the issues with socialism is that uh, it gives a lot of power to whoever is in charge of deciding who gets what resources since they're scarce. And it takes power away from other people. And, and I think uh, envy can play a major role when you're making those decisions. All right, so that starts to tie in a little faith element here of, of envy. Is, do markets create envy and greed or do they help minimize it? And uh, is that something that we should turn uh, for biblical reasons to markets to help or are they hindering? I think there'd be arguments on both sides. Yeah, I, th- I think the airline overbooking problem is just a, a great way to look at the, the world in general. And so you, you can see like maybe you are envious of one person who it was willing to wait at the airport for less time than you. You could think of that. And so that's like my wife and I getting sniped in, in the <laughs> airport in Mexico. So, you know, you wish maybe you have regret that you didn't accept the, the yeah. airline ticket. That you got a little greedy. Like, oh, yeah. I guess more would have been okay. We shouldn't have held out for 600. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But but I think the great thing is like, ultimately that like that rests at Haley and I's feet. And so like any sort of like envy that we feel there is probably misplaced because we could have agreed to this, this overbooking solution at 200, or we could have agreed to it at uh, 250. We wanted to aim for what I think I said, 650 each, you know, at, Honestly, that was a little bit greedy. And so sometimes I, th- I think the envy that we feel can sometimes reflect our actual, actually almost like a projection of our own envy. 
Well, I've made this argument a few different times that I don't think markets are the problem at all. Good, righteous people, good people use markets all the time, as well as bad, greedy, envious people use markets. Markets don't care. So when you start with original sin and acknowledge that we all have a little bit of that brewing in us, then it's only natural that when we engage in a market, that some of that can be revealed through the market interaction, right? So, but but to argue that markets create the greed or um, increase it, I'm not sure I buy that. I guess somebody could try to push back on that for me, but that's not where I stand. Yeah, and I think it's important to contrast with the alternatives is, do you want your greed to be costly to you? Or do you want your greed to be chosen by some person who kind of has their power arbitrarily? And, you know, maybe, maybe the captain of the ship, maybe a politician, if we're talking about socialism. Do we want that person to be able to make decisions over who gets resources? My thought is no. I mean, I think that that could go pretty heavily into preferences and things like that. I'd rather people, when they're making decisions about resources, where resources go to, that they be, you know, actually have some skin in the game. And and I think that uh, having skin in the game is is an important way to to kind of tease out unnecessary greed and envy. Justin? So I keep thinking that one of the main points in this paper, in this discussion, and even in this discussion of envy is that there's, we tend to think of fairness and justice as being the same thing. And we also think of fairness as being equality. You know, John Rawls wrote the, you know, the famous book, you know, where he tries to cast justice as fairness. But I think one of the things that really comes out of this discussion is that there are just going to be situations where fairness and justice are going to dovetail in the sense that we think it is, we think a Pareto superior outcome is just, right? It makes one person better off and doesn't make anybody else worse off. But if we are going to insist on equality and insist that equality is what we mean by fairness, then our demands for fairness are really going to oftentimes make everybody worse off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. And I made the argument in the paper that this was a very interesting credo improvement in that all parties were actually even better off. And so not only was no one worse off, but everyone was better off. And so you can see this especially reflected in airlines. And so you would think, well, if the airlines have, you know, they're going to have to start paying out money now to people instead of just like picking someone to pull off the flight. So like airlines probably weren't very happy about this, but it's, that's actually not the case. The amount of overselling of flights has gone up from 6.4 per 100,000 people to 44 seats for every 100,000 flyers. And so after the solution over the last, you know, looks like 40 years nonstop, airline overbooking has actually been an increase because it lets airlines oversell the flights even more. This gives them the chance so then they don't have to worry about making customers mad. Yeah. So they're, they're better off too. And then the people who get to keep their seats are better off. So in this case, yeah, if we decided that we were going to roll a dice to make the decision, some sort of fair, even probability thing, we would be making literally everyone in this exchange worse off. <laughs> I wanted to add that the other thing markets give us over other forms is some transparency and accountability. So even for that greedy person who's involved in the market, their greed is usually made known to the market participants at least. If not, other people that if they if it turned out to be a corruption deal or something, long term, it seems to catch up with a lot of those people in one way or the other once it gets found out. And so I think once people start to appreciate the mostly transparency and and accountability that markets have in order to stay in business for the long haul, they have to be doing something above board and not be that greedy, awful. So I think there's more correction of 
greed and envy and maybe meets the eye because I think we often get caught up with the short term or short run swindle that went on or something. But I, I think a lot of that is not the case for most transactions. Yeah. I, and I, I think even where greed persists, the, the market institution is great because it transforms it to good, despite the intentions of, you know, anybody who, who's in the, the system. And so like the, the person, the airline could say, well, that's really greedy that we have to pay people. We're, we're providing a service. We're, we're letting you fly through the sky. That's really nice. And so what? We made a mistake. Like, go, we're going to do it in two, just two hours. Just wait two hours for the next flight. And so that's, it's super greedy that you want money. And yet what ends up being the case is actually the greedy people who like really want, and, it, and they want the least amount, by the way, which is the great part of the price system, who are, you know, just give me $50 and I'll do it. The, their, their greed actually inspires everyone to be better off because otherwise, you know, <laughs> Everyone could get to planes as one solution. You yeah. have a person arbitrarily kicked off. You could, you could have someone like miss their child's birth for getting kicked off if you roll the dice. Uh, so the greed is actually transformed into something that helps. And it's impersonally transformed. That's, That's right. the beauty of it. I love that example you just gave because that greedy money hunger person, I'll take 50 bucks to do it. You don't even have to know that. And the market corrected itself. We don't have to have that interpersonal communication to learn what their real personality is like, what their history is like. It all just manifests itself in an instant as soon as the buttons clicked of whether you're willing to take 50 bucks or willing to take 600 bucks to delay that flight. Yeah. I think one more interesting route to go to is to just mention one, one more fact about the airline overbooking solution was that Simon's original proposal was in 1968. And the solution was adopted by the Civil, Aeron Civil Aeronautics Board in 1978. It took 10 years for the solution, which made everybody better off to, to uh, get adopted. And this was in spite of uh, a lot of brilliant people looking at it. And so uh, two economists who Simon forwarded this to who did not accept the solution were economists that, you know, if, if you know anything about economics, you're probably familiar with Milton Friedman being one. George Stigler being another, probably have heard more of Friedman than Stigler, but both of these economists actually denied the solution. And they thought, well, you know, if this were such a great solution, it would already be in place. That, ah. that, that was <laughs> essentially the, the, the disagreement. So I think uh, one last comment here on, on a solution like this is there's an aspect of human creativity and, and having faith in human creativity, I think can be very valuable in business and, and uh, as well as just trying to create solutions for the world. And I know that's kind of a sidebar, but uh, just an interesting note in history that this all-improving system that we all love today took 10 years to even go through. Right, right. Very slow to move. All right. Well, that sounds like a good note to end on, unless anybody else has got any final word. So, Peter, thank you for your work there on that little bits and piece of, uh, this was your dissertation or not? No, or no. This, the, this the, was that extra paper. Yeah, this is a paper again doing. written with okay. Pete and Rosalind Alcantara. Okay. Well, great. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Wharton Institute here at Albany University. And we'd like to thank you all for listening and appreciate your support. And if you'd like to support us a little more without using money, it's easy to do. Just jump online and give us a little five-star ranking that helps other folks uh, find our message and feel free to uh, forward our word to other friends and family of yours. And uh, if you feel so inclined, we have a little Wharton Institute donate button as well. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>